folks, and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. Now, my name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trapp and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrapp.com. Uh, each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. This week, my guest is Steve Krauss, the general partner who leads healthcare investing activities at Bessemer Venture Partners, a storied century-old VC firm headquartered right here in Cambridge's Kendall Square. Uh, Steve's been recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the top healthcare investors in the industry, having led or actively participated in investments in OvaScience, Cirrus Pharmaceuticals, Affimax, Avio, Transave, Veristem, Acceleron, uh, Restore Medical, and Flex Pharma. And those are just the ones that made it onto the NASDAQ. Uh, today, Steve serves on the boards of WellTalk, Bright Health, Health Essentials, Docent Health, Alina Pharmaceuticals, Alcresta, and DocuTap. Uh, Steve graduated summa cum laude from Yale as, and was a Baker Scholar at the Harvard Business School. Uh, before joining Bessemer, he worked in private equity and as a management consultant at Bain & Company. And he worked on a couple of big political campaigns throughout his career as well, which is something we'll delve into in our talk. Uh, Steve serves with me on the board of the New England Venture Capital Association and on that of, of the Achievement Network, on the investment committees of Blue Cross Blue Shields in Massachusetts and Rock Health and as an innovation advisor to Boston Children's Hospital. Now, having worked closely with Steve for a few years now, I can tell you what's amazing about him is what a complete goofball he is, despite being such a towering figure, figure and a tremendous intellect in our community. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation today, and as usual, learned a bunch about his background that even I did not know. Uh, in today's second segment, we're going to talk about how healthcare is changing in the shadow of our new president-elect, uh, where it is and where it's headed for us as Americans, New Englanders, and plain old patients uh, of a system that's in a pretty dramatic state of flux right now. And I think you're really going to enjoy that as well, so please stick around. Uh, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored, as always, by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Steve Krauss. Well, hello, Steve Krauss. How you doing, Mike? I'm good. How are you? I'm awesome. Um, all right. So uh, you are actually our first healthcare VC, um, proud to say. And and uh, I think particularly for those of us on the tech side, we tend to forget that that Boston is actually the place, yeah. <laughs> the place for, for all that yeah. stuff. So I'm very glad to have you today. I appreciate you coming by. Glad to be here. Um, so, you know, goal today is, is really to help people get to know you. Yep. Uh, you know, as a person, what you're about. And so let, let's go back to the beginning. Where, where, where did you grow up? I was born in Hartford, Connecticut. Um, proud uh, nutmaker, as they say. <laughs> uh, people who know me know that I love everything about Connecticut. But um, grew up in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and uh, pretty, pretty typical suburban Connecticut family. You know, mom, dad, sister. Uh, who uh, folks in town may know um, is an entrepreneur in town. So 
uh, Janet Krause is her name, and and uh, you know you could say we're the typical. I, I did not know you were Janet's bro- Janet's I am. brother. I am. I had no idea. That's yeah. so amazing. Well, I, if, you, I, if you look I, at us, I, well, the, the people on the podcast can't see it, but if you look eyebrows up, we're we're, we're very wow. similar features. I, I, yeah, I, I, I get that. Now. Yeah, that's. Uh, um, but, uh, so you know, so you're the elder or she is? No, she's the elder. She's right. 10 and a half years older than me. So I, I'm, I'm uh, the mistaken child in some ways. <laughs> it's a pro- bonus child. It's a bonus child. Yeah, bonus. that's a better way to yeah. say it. You're a yeah. marketeer. Yeah. Um, you know, um, but, it, you know, on the face of a nuclear family, the typical suburban family, but, um, you know, my sister 10 and a half years older than me. So we have a unique relationship um, that way and, and very much been a role model. And then... You know, when um, I was born, my, my parents have an interesting story in that um, mom, like my sister, very smart, went to Mount Holyoke, um, very talented woman. But when she graduated in 1960s, not a lot was expected of her. In fact, sure. her mom said, you know, go go to uh, Katie Gibbs school for secretarial um, work. And so my dad, for the basically my sister and I lived different lives because we were 10 and a half years apart. We had different childhoods. For my sister growing up, my mom was a pretty much stay-at-home mom, volunteered in the community. My dad was the breadwinner. And then when I was born, my mom made a decision. It was right around the equal rights movement uh, for women. And my mom decided and had the talent to um, first advise women how to get into the workforce, you know, to help shape resumes, to take interviews, to, to counsel them. And then by doing that, actually met a lot of the employers who uh, hired those women and ultimately was hired to uh, for a major bank in town to be their head of HR and then ultimately rose up over time to become, I think, the first woman ever to run a major financial institution in America. And so my parents literally switched roles when I was, um, you know, my childhood. So my that dad was the breadwinner. My mom became the breadwinner. I think that very much shaped it, – it says a lot about my sister and I and sort of shaped who we are to have that kind of dynamic. My, mo- my dad became Mr. Mom. So um, it's a pretty unique story, even though on the surface we're the typical American family. I think underneath we have some pretty interesting life experiences that shaped us and how we think about – our, our families and the people we work with and talent. Very few families are what they look like from the outside, yeah, in my that's experience. Yeah, for sure. Janet's such a star. You know, I've, I've spoken, uh, you know, I knew her at Harvard and then have been involved in a lot of different things. Did you ever feel like you were almost growing up in the shadow of that? Or, or how, how did... I'm yeah, just, it's a great question. I mean, people ask that all the time. Were you competitive? You yeah. know, did you, did you want to beat your sister or have your name? You know, and um, in truth, I talked about us being 10 and a half years apart. We never really fought. Right. Because, you know, we, it would have been pathetic if she tried to fight with sure. me because I was, you know, I just always looked up to her. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, she, she would uh, take care. I, you know, in, in essence, my mom, because she was working, Janet was my second mother in many ways. I mean, she, she would take care of me. And so I learned a lot from her. Um, we have a lot of the similar internal traits and some of the same external traits. Um, she's an entrepreneur. I'm a venture capitalist. We can, I've learned a lot from her, actually, about how to treat right. entrepreneurs, how venture capitalists treat entrepreneurs. I hear a lot of war stories and how to, you know, lessons from her. But um, no, we weren't really ever competitive. It, it's, it's, it's odd. We went very similar places, went to the same high school, went to the same college, um, but um, more friends and, and almost uh, a, a mentor and role model than a, than a peer. And you, you, uh, you went to Yale undergrad. And- I did. You know, had you had exposure to that visiting her uh, in New Haven? Or- I did. I did. I would go, uh, you know, when she was 18, I was eight. <laughs> and so I would go, and it was, you know, it was awesome. It felt like Disney World, the it's big like gothic a, cathedral. Yeah, it's like Hogwarts. Yeah. yeah, and then there was a candy store <laughs> below her freshman dorm. That was the best. I was a little bit of a heavy kid when I was younger. Yeah. Which, uh, so uh, House Krause and Heavy K, my friends, was calling me. So I loved visiting, you know, <laughs> Lamb and Wright Hall and Durfee's Candy Shop was underneath. That was how she'd treat me. So, um, 
um, she was a, a hockey player, actually, a women's hockey player, um, pretty competitive. And so my dad and I would travel around all over New England, up to Canada, and I'd bring friends along. We have signs, you know, go Janet Krause, number 17, and her friends. And so that was really fun. What was your experience at Yale? Yeah, it was great. It was big. It was challenging. Uh, it, it, it was academically, people were really smart. I loved, and I think this has shaped me too from my family, um, is sort of the importance of community and actually of giving back to your community. And New Haven is, unlike some places that are in a city, New Haven's so in your face. You know, Yale is like, it's this beautiful cathedral and lots of resources. And then like literally walk out the door and it is, you know, it's poverty. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and I think um, I love that element. I love the the challenges of sort of town-gown relationships and how do you, how does a university think as a, a citizen about trying to better the community that's in? That, that was really important to me. And that's very, and people in Yale are very, there's a, there's a core of spirit there in terms of volunteering. And I think 90% of the students volunteer. So that was great. I'd say also when I visited, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a journalist. That was like my, I was zoned in on that. Wow. My, fir- my first job was writing for a professional newspaper, getting paid to do that. And so, like, when I visited Yale, literally my dad will say when he took me up there, the first place we went was the Yale Daily News, which is a fantastic college newspaper, the oldest college newspaper. And so I was like, that to me was, like, the pinnacle, to be able to be the editor-in-chief of the Yale Daily News. I sort of went in there focused. So that was I did that a lot during college. And is that great. what you majored in, journalism? No, I. Uh, they don't have a journalism major at right. Yale, but I. that is what I spent the majority of my time doing my first three years in college, is I would write, uh, it published uh, five days a week, and I'd probably write four of them. Wow. And so, you know, I um, I thought I was going to be a journalist. That was my life goal. That's what I did in high school, is I wrote for, as a strainer for independent newspapers, and I did internships during the summer, and I wrote... You know, almost to my detriment of my social life and sort of any life I had, I, I was sort of focused on the Yale Daily News. It was great. I mean, I learned so much from being a journalist. Actually, some of which, surprisingly, <laughs> applies to the VC job. Yeah, um, you got to be an observer. You have to listen. You know, yeah. the, the thing that you do as a journalist is you listen. Um, you know how to ask questions that get people. It's not the question that's the obvious question. It's the question that gets someone to speak, you know, and tell you uh, more than they really want to tell you. Right, right. Um, yeah, you're always asking. You're always asking that why, you know. Um, and and for someone like a venture capitalist, also, it's it's intellectually stimulating. I mean, every day you're covering something new. Um, right. And and so if you like that intellectual sort of potpourri, if you will, um, being a journalist is great. There's some there's some negative sides to it, which is why I'm not doing it today. But <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're going to talk a little bit about the um, recent election and the impact, particularly on the healthcare VC, but but more generally. You know, there's been so much talk about media and journal- journalism and a lot of the fake news phenomenon, yeah. you know, through the course of the presidential election. Any thoughts to share on that? How, how do you react to that as someone who's been a student of journalism for, you know, at least for the, for the early part of your life? I think it's really unfortunate for society that we have so few great journalistic institutions anymore. In particular, I would say the printed press. Right. There are maybe three or four exceptional print journalistic organizations in terms right. of daily newspapers. Um, and so that's that's unfortunate because um, those were the sources of, of, of truth, right, and, and, and the sources that held people accountable. And instead now, because folks are on their, their mobile phones and we've sort of got, you know, all these great social media sites, which have some amazing benefits to them. Right. But, uh, you know, the thing I find is that um, and I try not to do this. I find people friend their friends and follow 
those who are the echo chamber of right. what they believe. Right. And and it's not shocking, by the way, that Silicon Valley and some of our communities ca- caught like totally dead-footed on what happened. And in, in you and I have talked about this, what happened in, in America, right? Because right? we're listening to each other. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the, the sort of Hillary's going to win, Hillary's going to win. How could Hillary not win? Yeah. Um, this is not shocking because, you know, in the old days you'd have, you know, sources of truth and, and, and they could, um, you know, they, I think those are, those are disappearing in our side. I think it's, I think it's tough. And I think with the new administration, you know, uh, there needs to be folks in the, in the, the press who are going to stand up. Um, cause I really worry that that, I mean, we see it right now. It's, it's getting questioned day and day, day to day. And I worry that, um, you know, I, I worry that that sort of fourth rail, if you will, is, is going to get, you know, sure. is going to get eroded. Well, you know, first call to action. Everybody out there, subscribe to a real newspaper. You know, yeah. I, I, um, I was so blown away by the quality of the coverage. I've always been a New York Times subscriber since I lived in New York. But the the uh, Washington Post, I think, is just such doing such an amazing job, job right now. I think you should read the journal. I think you should read. Yeah. I think you and, and read. Not I agree. Subscribe to the paper, but also make sure to read stuff that you don't agree with. Yeah. I mean, I listen to sports talk radio one because I love sports, but like, you know, they represent. Us, you know, they say yeah. stuff that I hate. That's the real world. But no, not the real world. They just represent another world sure. that isn't necessarily of our beliefs. And I think we, we have you have to listen to opposing views in order to understand the whole contextual framework in which we're operating. No, you're absolutely, absolutely right. All right, so you graduated uh, from Yale, and what did you do right after school? Well, I thought I was going to be a journalist. <laughs> and uh, I, one night I was, uh, in my, between my junior and senior year, I was, I was, uh, I was covering sports for uh, the Hartford Current. And uh, I got to, uh, when you covered a new sport, you, got to, you had to be shadow with a guy who had done it before, mostly guys in the industry at that time. Um, and I got to do auto car racing out in northwestern Connecticut, never done auto car racing. This is like small box cars. And so I was riding with this guy because he was going to teach me how to do it. And he smoking a cigarette, literally in his Pinto, I think. I mean, it was a beat-up car. And he's like, kid, you just can't go into this industry. And it was like a dark night. <laughs> you know, we were headed to a place where I didn't really want to cover auto car racing. And I was just like, and, you know, you also lose the, the love of writing to deadline. Sure. It gets monotonous. And so I just was like, it was that moment where I was like, I don't really love writing deadline. I love listening to people's stories, but I don't love writing deadline. And this guy, I like look at him and he's got a not a not a really attractive life. And he's yeah. telling me not to do this. And he's the star of this newspaper almost, right? Or one of them. So I said to my sister, back to Jan, I said, who's my, you know, best friend, I said, what am I gonna do? And she said, go into business. I said, I don't, I don't know anything about business. <laughs> what does that mean? You know, my mom and dad talked business. My sister talked business. She was, I guess at that time, an entrepreneur. And she said, oh, well, you know, we talk about it on the, the table. And she said, well, go, go get a consulting job. So I applied to Bain and a couple other places. And I honestly think I, I got accepted because one of my sister's friends interviewed me. <laughs> and like, they liked the Krause family. I mean, as you said, my sister's a star. So I, I guess I showed up all right. But I did an internship at Bain. And it was great. You know, it was like- it In was Boston? In Boston. Yeah. I knew I wanted to be in Boston. It's a great office, great, great group. I knew I wanted to be in Boston because it's my type of city. And um, I loved it. It was like, it's like law school almost. Like you're deferring decision making, but they're smart people. And I learned a lot. I learned how to think about business. I learned how to communicate. Um, It wasn't what I wanted to do long term. But I also learned there that I loved healthcare. You know, the first couple of cases I worked on after school were, I worked on a waste management project and the AOL Time Warner merger, which was a terrible case, as you can imagine, given the outcome. But then I found healthcare, and I was like, "Oh, this healthcare thing, I like this." You know, it's it's it's. I'm a little bit. Of, I'm definitely a do-gooder, not a little bit. And it was, wow, I can work 
um, and, and make money, um, but I also feel like I, you can make a difference. And it's an interesting industry. It's complex. It involves public policy. It's got smart people. I mean, a lot of the things just sort of then at 22, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Cool. So I worked at Bain for two years. I was sort of, you know, didn't know what I was going to do. And I was on a nonprofit board for a charter school in town. Um, and one of my friends who was on the board said, hey, my friend is running for governor. And this was 2002. It was 2001, actually. And she's a Yaley. Her name's Shannon O'Brien. She was the treasurer at that time of the state. Do you want to go work? You know, you, you care about public policy. Do you want to go work on a campaign? And I was 24. I was like, I got no liabilities. Nobody relies sure. on me. Sure, it sounds awesome. <laughs> so I was actually her first hire um, and worked on the campaign for 14 months. Um, and that was a campaign where she ran against Mitt Romney. He ultimately won. But it was a close campaign. It was fascinating. I learned, as someone who's interested in politics, I learned a ton about how to run a campaign, what it's like to actually be a campaign, a candidate in the trenches. Um, it definitely makes it less romantic and, yeah. and makes it more real. Um, and I ultimately became her speechwriter, which actually fit with my background. Um, and so that was great because I traveled with her every day. I got to see the good, the bad, the ugly from her view and also thought about how do you make her messaging resonate with the, with the constituents. Um, and ultimately there, to connect to healthcare, our lieutenant governor candidate was a guy named Chris Gabrielli, who folks in town will know. Sure. Successful healthcare IT entrepreneur, then ran Bessemer's healthcare practice. He was our lieutenant governor candidate, and on the campaign, I worked with him on healthcare policy because we both he was he was a healthcare geek, and so am I, and we just hit it off there. And when we lost, we were measuring the drapes for the governor's office because it was close at the end, and we thought we were going to win. And Mitt Romney came back and beat us, and I was going to head back to Bain because they were not nice enough to take me back. And Chris called me up and said, "Hey, do you want to work as a venture cap? You know, as my associate as a venture capital?" I literally had never thought about venture capital before in my life, other than listening to my sister have raised raise money and what sure. it was like. And uh, all I knew is I liked Chris and I thought he was really smart and I liked healthcare and I thought he was a good person. And so I was like, yeah, I want to work with you. I'd love to be you when I grow up. And uh, that's how I got to Bessemer. So shifting gears into the associate role at a VC firm, what advice do you have for someone who's becoming an associate at a, at a big time VC firm? What did you take away from that experience uh, that you think you know led you to get to where you are today? couple things I'd say. One is, at the end of the day, this business is all about relationships. We have to get the best entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs to want to do business with us and to trust us, right? Because, uh, you know, we at Bessemer think we've got a great fund and we do have a great fund and we have things that we can bring to the table. I know you, you work with Andreessen and they've got a platform, so do we. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think the entrepreneurs choose when it comes to the individual relationships. So, so don't be short-sighted is the first thing I'd say. You know, when you're an associate, you really want to prove that you can get that deal or, or you know, win. You know, I, I right. think just take the long view right. on the relationships because they do take a long time. You know, now I've gotten the chance to work with multi entrepre repeat entrepreneurs several times over, and I hope to work with them. I've worked with one guy five times. Yeah. So that's number one. N number two, so that's sort of, the, that's sort of the, the person level. Number two, I'd say, you know, have a voice, develop a voice, um, and and a and a view, and 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 be willing to speak up, right? Uh, venture capital partnerships are are um, they're an interesting being, um, but I think the thing that I, I think across all firms that people respect is someone who has a view, a vision, and a voice, and a willingness to speak up. So, um, you know, our our young associates, some of them have amazing, you know, 
some of them are closer to the technology and, and what's in the market today than we are. And we, we encourage them to, you know, we have everyone vote on every deal. We have everyone around the table when every, when every, when every company presents. And, and it's because we want to get those voices in the room. And, and you know, it's oh, in every organization, the younger people are hesitant to speak up. And I think if I could say one thing to the young Steve Krause, it'd be like, you're smart. You know, you, you have a view on healthcare. Speak up. Speak up earlier. Because at the end of the day, it's really the relationships and your ideas and sort of your brain that you're you're kind of trading upon. Um, and then create a brand for yourself, it, which has changed. That That's different than when I started. Definitely. It's much easier to create a brand. And I think being thoughtful about how you create a brand is important longer term. Does Vesner make, make decisions? Uh, and that's a very egalitarian approach for a fund, right? Most funds... Um, don't don't work quite that way. Is it a is it a vote? Is it a unanimous consent? Like how does that how does that partnership make decisions about where to invest? Yeah, we're so we we, we operate as one fund, uh, which is uh, but but we think it's really important and it's an apprenticeship business. So the reason we have our younger people around the table is because someday we hope they're going to be the partners that run the firm. Right. Um, and we've done a great job of 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 transferring the firm. I mean, we're a 100-year-old firm, and we've done a great job of transferring the firm and maintaining the brand. So it actually really is important that we develop the next generation. So we think both for our own due diligence and decision-making, it's important to have their voices, but for their learning as the future partners of the firm, that they absorb the experience of what it's like to be in that room and how these decisions aren't really easy right, to make. Right. Um, in terms of how we, we we ultimately make our decisions, we're also very distributed. You know, we're a we're a global firm. Truly, we have six offices. Um, we have fourteen partners, uh, fifty investment professionals. We've got probably twenty different investment practices. So, in terms of how the firm actually makes its decisions, we're pretty distributed. We actually. Um, push the decision making down to the investment practices um, because you know I'm investing in healthcare IT and 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 life sciences and David Cowan my partner is investing in cybersecurity and Byron Dieter is investing in cloud computing and we're doing stuff in autonomous I mean you know they know way more about their specific industry than I will ever know and so we we give advice and we give counsel and we we definitely like it when people say hey I, I wouldn't do that deal you know for X Y and Z reason right. or you should. You should think about this or that, but we we ultimately push the decision making down to the group. So I'd say it's checks and balances, but with a pretty heavy um, distributed decision making power. You're one of those people who started as an associate and went to business school and came back and to be a partner. Was that your intention all along, or or you know did it just work out that way, or how, how did you think about the trip to HBS? Honestly, <laughs> um, you know I was 29 in Boston um, and. You know, you work in VC, and unfortunately, it's it tends to be an older white male community. And so, um, I kind of went to HBS for a diverse experience. You know, um, and 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 you know, I I don't have shame about it. I kind of went to you know, I was single at the time, and I kind of went to I was you know, I I was single. I grew up in New England. I went listen. I I was born in West Hartford. I went to school in New Haven. I live in Boston. I mean, you know, I'm like. I'm like right off the boat, right? Yeah, I mean, so like I went to go travel. Practically when I say diverse, yeah, exactly. When I say when I went diverse, I went to travel, and I did travel. I sort of went for the for the life experience, um, and I'm really glad I did it. Um, I actually ended up re-meeting my wife at, at business school, Sarah and I. Um, we had gone on one date in Boston back in like 2002, um, but we re-met at business school and uh, been married ever since. So that was a huge victory. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I traveled. I got to go all over the world. I made great friends. And um, I now advise people. I think my mom said it best to me. She said, Steve, you're going to, so you're going to retire at 60 instead of 58. Like, 
trust me, I'm on the other side. Who cares? Like, yeah. if you have to work two more years, it's an amazing experience. You, you know, life is life is way more than just a career progression. Yeah. Um, go. Good advice. And I'm glad I did it. You know, one of the things that we're involved in together is the New England Venture Capital Association. And I, I know how passionate you are about the work that we do there and, and the amount of time and effort that you've put into it. Why? Well, when I first got involved, it, as you know, we, we, got, we were, got involved around the same time. It was a uh, it was a different organization. It was more of a, a wine and steak club. And I remember going to my first board meeting, I think it was dinner, and you might have been there. I said, I sort of said to myself, what are we doing here? And, and right about that time, I give you credit. I give Jamie Goldstein credit, um, James Nahirney credit, CA Web credit. You know, a group of people got together and said, guys, and, and, and you know, we've got limited time here. Just your question, why are we doing this? And, and it's, it was that energy, that coalition of like, let's do something. Let's make this organization great <laughs> um, that I got excited about. And it was really um, the idea of if, 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 if we as VCs um, invest our time, our resources into making the entrepreneurial community great, that, that you know, rises all tide, you know, rises all boats, the rising tide. And so I got excited about that. I got excited about the mission of, at that time also, remember, it was Boston was in sort of like a dark era of, of our community. If people felt down, you know, we... People felt like everything was going to San Fran. And so we got a good group of people together who were excited about really evangelizing what's great about Boston and why entrepreneurs and, and aspiring entrepreneurs should move here and, and why investors want to be here. And, you know, I, I really care about this community. I think it's it's so unique and so great for many reasons. Like, that was that was very motivating for me. And and I like the early stages of stuff, and it felt like an early stage. Even though it was an organization that had been around for a while, it felt like we had a group of people who were banded together to – to try and do something different, and so that was really motivating for me. Um, and I think we've, I think we've done, I think it's come a long way from where we were, um, and we're making a real impact now. So I think so too. It feels good. All right. So uh, f- particularly for the folks on the tech side of things, you know, you mentioned the sort of benevolent aspect of of you know healthcare and life sciences and. And the idea of helping people. How important is the the helping people factor? I mean, at the end of the day, investors give you money and they expect yeah. a return. Help someone who's not in that world understand the role of of the more benevolent aspect of of healthcare in a in a business like like yours. First of all, healthcare is a big industry, so there's a lot of subsectors. But um, if you take pharmaceuticals, let's just take that for instance. I mean, I think that's the most clear, right? I mean, if if there's if, if the drug that you're creating is not improving the disease state of someone, uh, it will not get paid for, um, and there will be a not not be a market for it. So that's a that's a pretty clear path to, okay, there's people suffering from a disease. I think I can develop a drug against a target that's going to work, that improves the life of that patient, and therefore that gets reimbursed. I think that's the clearest line, um, ultimately. Um, and so to me, that, that's one avenue. There's also then, there's the healthcare IT side, which is really trying to create technologies that improve the delivery of care um, or the payment of care or, the, or a consumer's experience when it comes to their care. And frankly, that's, there's, you know, the, the direct correlation sometimes is, is not as clear. And, and one of the things about the, the era that we're in where we're moving from what is known as a fee-for-service payment system 
to a fee-for-value payment system. So in the fee-for-service system, if you visit a doctor, they get paid, regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah. In fact, if you come back because your hip hurts even more, they get paid again. Right, right. I mean, that doesn't work. Right. If you Whereas, pay for pr- procedures, you get a lot of procedures. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in fee-for-value, which is where we're moving to, which is where a lot of the inventor of capital investing entrepreneurship is going into, then the outcome is linked to the payment. And in fact, the doctor wants you to leave the door being healthy because if they, you come back again, they don't get paid again. They get paid one time. So I think it's changing. I think some of the policy shifts um, are, are changing that. Um, but, uh, but you know, there are some instances of companies making money where it doesn't necessarily improve patients' lives, um, for sure. When you look at the, the, the tech aspect of, of healthcare, you know, what are the, you know, I, I think immediately of the, of the, you know, open CAT scan machine. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I know that's sort of... You've been there. Yeah, You've yeah. been there. Yeah, no, and that, and, but that was a huge step forward yeah. from... You know the old school yeah. uh, being in the tunnel yeah, of love right, there. Right. Um, you <laughs> know, get to listen to good tunes. <laughs> yeah. So what? What? You know, what does a home run in that business look like? Um, in whatever terms that makes sense. Is it? Is it about? Is it straight up ROI? Is it about outcomes? Like, how do you think about the the, the devices, um, the technologies in the healthcare space that have been transformative that you want to be a part of? Yeah. I mean, I think um, they talk about. The, the sort of triple aim in healthcare, right? Which is, you know, you, 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 you lower the, you, the, the, the sort of paradigms, if you could lower the cost, you could improve the quality, the outcome, and you could also have a, an amazing patient experience, right? Like that's, that's, the, that's the sort of, that's the ultimate high you could get. I, you know, in truth, I, I think uh, it's hard, that's hard to, really hard to do. Um, one of the challenges of the healthcare ecosystem is there's so many competing forces um, it's a really, if, if you designed the healthcare system from a blank sheet, sheet of paper, you never would design it like the American healthcare right. system has been designed, where you have a separation of who pays for care, who consumes the care. Um, you've got providers and payers at odds. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty messed up system. So actually to achieve the triple, triple aim, it's, 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 it's very tough. But for me, I think the, the best companies that I, I have been involved in are the ones where... Um, they may not achieve the triple aim, but they 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 have improved the quality of care and also um, and also have an amazing patient experience, right? I mean, or they improve the cost of care. I think oftentimes you can hit on two, but hitting on all three is yeah. very very so tough. Give, give us an example of that in the company you've been involved. In. I mean, I think you know one of the companies that I'm really you know, and of course they have to have a, a good financial return too, because sure, that's sure. what I do. Um, our LPs want their money back <laughs> plus some. Um, but I think, you know, OvaScience is a great example of a company that I've been involved in where it still remains to be seen whether um, it's a, it's, um, it, it is going to, you know, change the, the, the lives of, of millions of patients. But what they're doing essentially is um, trying to help couples who are infertile. And, and, and the science behind it, it actually comes out of uh, someone out of Boston University and MGH, was um, for years scientific dogma has been that a woman is born with a certain number of eggs and over time um, th- that depletes until menopause, and then she has no more eggs. And it was thought that you start with 1,000, let's just say, M was zero. And this guy was doing research where you'd expect if you start with 1,000, M was zero, and if you can mark the cell death, which you can do now in science, you'd actually see 1,000 cell death markers. Well, he saw something like 5,000 when he was doing this across women. So he said, what's going on here? And he realized that the ovarian pool actually has the ability to repopulate itself. Well, that is fundamentally, you know, completely turned science on its head, if that's true, because... That's not what's been known for, for decades. Um, and so they harness that technology to help 
infertile women in particular who had ovarian issues actually use these stem cell-like properties, these, these cells that can repopulate themselves and make the women fertile again. And so, you know, you think about that, right? The ability to take a couple who's, you know, tried IVF three, four, five times, use the OvaScience procedure to actually have them be able to conceive. I mean, there's nothing more powerful than, yeah. as you know, being a father, right, of having kids. At that moment, is like, it's life-changing. Um, that's awesome. And, and that's actually happened with Ova Science, and it's turned out to be a great investment for Bessemer. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, my partners do awesome, cool stuff. We've got great companies, but I think that's, like, the, the, holy, the holy grail for me. And, and, you know, Baby Zane was our first baby that was born with Ova Science's technology, and there's been many, many more born. And, and so, you know, it's challenging because there's, there's, again, like I talked about, healthcare is complex, and the company's gone through challenges because there's regulatory issues that they have to factor with, and it's hard to actually do the technology. It costs a lot of money, so it doesn't hit on all the triple aim. But, man, I mean, creating kids for, for, for couples who couldn't have them, that's, like, I don't think it gets better any better than that. So they're making people over there in healthcare and life sciences. Uh, I have to say that is a pretty humbling idea for those of us in copy data virtualization. But uh, hopefully you get a sense of what a person of broad interest. He's just a fascinating guy and um, anyway, speaks for itself. So uh, I wanted to spend our second segment with Steve to really get his perspective on uh, a fast-changing political environment. Um, I'm recording this uh, Thanksgiving week just as uh, President-elect Trump has begun to soften his uh, position in terms of, uh, you know, repealing and replacing Obamacare, talking about potentially hanging on to certain of the more popular aspects of the Affordable Care Act. And uh, I was curious to get Steve's take on it. We're just coming off this election, a a big world-changing election. I don't feel like I woke up yet. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, you know, you talked a little bit about the changing nature, you know, how payment reform is affecting really the whole business of healthcare and healthcare delivery, this evolution from a procedure or a, a, a pay-for-service model to a pay-for-outcome. And the incentives, the nature of, of healthcare technology has changed a lot, as is the regulatory environment. You had a presidential candidate who was pretty black and white in terms of repealing mm-hmm. and, and quote-unquote replacing Obamacare. Now it seems like, like the president-elect has, seems to have a more nuanced view of, of how that will affect people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm curious just to get your, you know, your take on you know, where we are mm-hmm. in the arc of, of uh, making mm-hmm. healthcare you know, more effective, more, more cost-effective, and more available, uh, and, and maybe where we're going next. Yeah, so we're right in the middle of it, <laughs> and uh, you know I get asked this question every day right now. It's it's a so it's all speculation, but but I think hard about it. And so what I'd say is, you know, Obamacare was not a perfect piece of legislation, but it was pretty darn good. And, and one of the reasons I, I really liked it was is that it was multifaceted. It was very deep, ro- deeply rooted in, in public policy. By the way, it had a lot of Republican and conservative ideology. Yeah, it, it actually uh, originated in it. as a Republican. Yeah, I mean, the exchanges were li- yeah. literally written by the Cato Institute 25 years sure. ago. So, um, but they were all interdependent and worked well together. And and so, you know, um, there was a lot of progress being made. And frankly, from my community, our community, which is the innovation and, and, and venture community, I mean, Obamacare and the High Tech Act, which was the act that caused all the digitization to happen of the industry, 
I mean, from 2009 on when that happened, there's been the, the amount of venture capital that's poured into healthcare IT and reforming the healthcare system has like tenfold each year. So when I first started investing in this industry, there was about 150, 200 million of venture capital invested in healthcare IT every year. For the last four years, it's been about $4 billion. That's, that's 10 years that, that that's happened. That's, you know, just, and so one of my concerns is whenever there's regulatory change in healthcare, there's a, it's a glass half full, glass half empty. The glass half empty in the near term is that people freeze up. Um, and this happened around Obamacare, by the way, too. The market right. slowed down because the buyers of these technologies are are, are conservative often, be, and for right for right rightly so. When you know they're, they're large health systems, they're large insurers, and they're slow moving. And so when there's regulatory change, they they literally just sit on their hands. And that's one of my fears that you know it's going to take a while for this policy, as we've seen now, because you mentioned that the Trump is is more nuanced. It's going to take a while to roll out the new policy, and I just worry that all the innovation is going to freeze up. And when customers freeze up, I mean, you're, you're an entrepreneur, you know, venture capitalists, you know, sometimes are, 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 are a little skittish too, you know. So I, I'm a little worried in the short term what's going to happen. I can say long term that um, I know some of the advisors to President Trump and, I, you know, while I have different ideology, I, I know they're deeply schooled in healthcare, And so I, I hope that they're going to um, advise him well. And I will tell you that uh, there has been over the last, you know, three decades, probably five major pieces of legislation as it relates to healthcare. And every time there is one, there's opportunity for innovation. I mean, each time, you know, there was passage of the Balanced Budget Amendment, the Medicare Modernization Act, mm-hmm. High Tech Act, Obamacare, there have been companies that have been created by entrepreneurs that are worth billions of dollars. So I say to every entrepreneur, I said this back when Obamacare was passed, go get that piece of legislation and read it, you know, cover to cover. And in one small paragraph that says the secretary shall it'll have some legalistic language and right there will be an idea for a new business that could be worth you know a lot of money right. um so I, the hat, glass is half full is that you know we'll just have a new we'll have a new regime we'll have to react to and hopefully it'll be well thought out and there'll be opportunity to to innovate um now the thing i worry about is that um you know frankly there's going to be a lot of pain that's felt if, if he does get rid of um, the exchanges. Uh, if he does get rid of or you know Medicaid expansion through block grants, I mean, there's going to be a lot of people, some of whom were his voters, many of whom might have been his voters, who are going to all of a sudden wake up and not have health care. And that's a, I mean, yes, premiums were rising. I think that had a lot to do with the election outcome. Is that people got their premiums on November first and they they rose a lot, but. Not having health care is a lot worse in my mind, and I worry about that a lot. Yeah, you know, there was a piece in the, in the Times about Western Kentucky, and something like 60% of that community um, has been a beneficiary of Obamacare. For sure. Um, and, we have a, uh, we're investors in, a, in, a, in a, an exchange business uh, called Bright Health out in Colorado. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of, you know, if the subsidies go away and the mandates go away, um, people are going to lose their health insurance. You know, the only way to make the economics work, right, if you, if you, um, if you make sure that people can get care regardless of a, of pre-existing a previous condition. pre-existing condition, if you keep people on longer, you know, there has to be some requirement for participation on the part of young, healthy people. It's crazy. Right? I mean, you know, uh, and they talk about, yeah, that's exactly right. They talk about, um, so we're not going to call the subsidy. We're going we're gonna to call it tax credit. <laughs> that's just balance sheet shifting, right? right I mean, right. that's what they're going to do. They're going to give, which is not a bad idea, by the way. It is pretty weird that, you know, we create the system, as I said, if we were to do it today from a blank sheet of paper, we wouldn't give employers a tax credit to give you choose you your insurance. We'd give you know we'd figure out a way to give the individual the choice, right? right? Um, so they're going to do that probably, and either they do that and that draws people healthy people into the market to balance off the risk, which is going to exist, or they create high risk pools, which are going to have to be government funded. <laughs> 
So at the end of the day, these policies often say, I mean, they sound pretty Democratic. They sound pretty Republican. I think, you know, I think it's, you know, the unfortunate thing about Obamacare, as we talked about, is it's actually called the Affordable Care Act. And it was renamed Obamacare for political expediency, when in truth, there's a lot of policies in there that, you know, Speaker Ryan's plan looks extremely similar to. So this is more about politics and policy. And I hope at the end of the day that the policy is going to actually net net be better than many of us fear um, because of that. When you look to the horizon, a lot of our listeners are, are uh, you know, in Boston or New York and uh, particularly for Boston, you know, what are the implications of a move in that direction? Maybe a refinement, a repackaging mm-hmm. uh, to some extent of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you know, who are the winners and losers in our community from from that kind of a, a shift? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I would say one of the great things about the Obama administration was that we had uh, we had a lot of the policymakers came out of this area. That was very advantageous to us. I mean, Boston, we've talked about, it's, it's just such an epicenter of healthcare. You know, we've got leading payers, leading providers, leading academic institutions. We've got some great companies that are big companies. We've got a lot of small companies. And we had a lot of the policymakers come from our academic institutions that went and crafted the policy. I'm not sure that's going to be the same in the Trump administration, unfortunately. Right. Right. Um, but in terms of in terms of who are the uh, the winners and, and, and losers, I think the uh, the pharma industry is 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 happy, um, and the stock market would reflect that. I, I think there was really fear about, I mean, there was always fear about a Democrat about being single payer. I, I don't think that was going to be a reality, but that's existential fear. And then there was definitely fear about pushback on price, prices on drugs. I mean, the whole EpiPen issue. And then, you know, Hillary was out front on, on that. I don't think that's as big of an issue for Trump. And, and you know, with our green eye shade, our financial hats on, that's good for the biotech industry um, right. Right. here. And that's a Real source of, of innovation and, and growth in our community. Um, on the healthcare IT side, I think um, we're going to have to be uh, flexible. Our companies are, but we've got a real hub here. And one of the things I'm excited about is we have a governor in the state who is a Republican, by the way, Charlie Baker, who really understands healthcare. And I actually think he's a, he's been a really good leader. And he's he's really pushing. I've been working with him and other community leaders to make Massachusetts the digital healthcare IT hub that this is a cluster, given the strength that we have in healthcare already, um, given that we're in the early days of healthcare IT innovation, that, you know, Massachusetts should be the epicenter, just like it is in life sciences for digital health. And I just came from a meeting this morning where he's brought together, literally, like I talked about, the academic leaders, the payers, the providers, some venture capitalists, some entrepreneurs in a room, probably 30 of us, brainstorming how we how we really double down on this 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 ecosystem. I'm, I'm really excited about that. And it helps that our, our state leader is not only a smart guy and a reasonable guy and a businessman himself, but one who care, who knows this industry. Um, so I, I'm hopeful that 10 years down the line, we're going to look back and say that, you know, Massachusetts um, really took advantage of this moment to become a leader in not only life sciences and biotech and pharma, but also in healthcare IT, which I think is going to be a growth engine for our economy. So all of us have a stake in this healthcare system, you know, as Americans, in some cases as investors, but but uh, everyone as as a patient. Digital health records and and you know we're all familiar have been touched by HIPAA in one way or another. Any advice for people as stewards of our own data? You know, should you find a way to export your healthcare records? Or should you get those from your doctor? You know, what, what do what do we as patients yeah. you know need to understand about that aspect of modern it, healthcare? It's a great question. I, I um, one of the challenges of the industry, as we talked about, is that there's such a disconnect between the consumers of health and those who pay for it. 
Um, and I think if you went, I, I asked around Bessemer, and I think if you went and asked around Actifio, for people to understand actually how much money their employer is contributing to their healthcare, they would miss maybe by an order of magnitude. Yeah. And so one of the things I think you should understand is really understand uh, and try to take control maybe through a high deductible plan or just through you know doing cost transparency analysis. Really understand the choices that you're making with your healthcare dollars. That's where I think you can start. By the way, I think the industry is moving that way. We know that companies are pushing more money and decisions um, into the, their, their, their employees, that more employees are bearing out of cost. That's not going to change. So you should become educated. Just like you are on Mint about your finances, you should become educated on your, um, on your health care expenses. That's number one. Number two, on the clinical side, which is harder to understand because there can be some technical and, and medical terminology, I would encourage you nowadays, because of some of the stuff that's happened around digitization, um, f- for the first time, really only in the last couple of years, uh, is it requirement that health systems actually be able to share your, your record not only with you, but a, with across different provider groups. And so these are called personal health records. All of us have a personal portal that you can access. They're actually really ugly. That's one of the opportunities is we need to improve the user experience around healthcare. But I'd encourage you to download all that information and to, to look at it. We're going to become much, much more active over the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years in our care, whether it be the financial side or the clinical side. Um, and then, of course, there's the genomics revolution, which, you know, um, 10 years ago, it cost $10 million to sequence your genome, and we're now down to 1000 bucks, and soon we'll be at 100 bucks. I think at sub $100, most everyone's going to get their genome sequenced, and that's going to tell us some really interesting stuff. So if you have the capability um, and are interested, I'd encourage you to do that um, uh, you know, as the price point comes down, um, because there's going to be a lot of information um, that comes out of that 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 exercise. Uh, of course, there's a lot of other issues like security and privacy and things that come out of it too. But that's what I do as a consumer, um, and pray that you're never sick and in the hospital. Okay, so not exactly a hugely upbeat note to end on, but uh, I will indeed pray that I am never sick and in a hospital. And in the meantime, uh, I will find some solace in knowing that there are good people like Steve out there. Uh, at least investing in the companies that um, hopefully will all make us healthier over time. All right, so How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for sticking around. Have a great week, and we will see you next time.